This indeed is Pentecost Sunday, and of course Pentecost comes around 50 days following the uh, Sunday which has followed the Passover. And again, it's hard to believe that much time has passed. But I want to recall from those holy words from the book of Acts um, a couple of verses for you to remember this morning. While staying with them, and we're speaking here of the risen Jesus, he ordered them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait there for the promise of the Father. This, he said, is what you have heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit, not many days from now. And then when we come to the second chapter of the book of Acts, when the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place, and suddenly from heaven there came a sound like the rush of a violent wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. Divided tongues as of fire appeared among them, and a tongue rested on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit, filled with the Holy Spirit. In 1905, Albert Einstein introduced a world-changing equation, and you could tell me what it is, E equals mc square. That was a component of his familiar theory of relativity. Over the next four decades, scientists exploited aspects of the theory so as to produce the greatest power that man has ever developed, and that is atomic energy. When the bomb was detonated over Hiroshima, and that was in 1945, Time magazine suggested that people might just as well forget everything they had learned up to that time. Yet every creature of God knows, knows that there is yet a greater power than all that. Six centuries before Christ, Zechariah the prophet delivered a message to Zerubbabel that the desecrated and demolished Jerusalem temple was going to be rebuilt. But this great act of restoration was going to be accomplished, and hear this, not by might, nor by power, but by my Holy Spirit. From Japan to Chernobyl to Three Mile Island and back to Japan again, and we recall the Fukushima disaster of 2011, man's most powerful power has demonstrated its ability to destroy and to kill. To this day, when the term weapons of mass destruction is invoked, what do we think of? We think of atomic bombs and other kinds of nuclear weaponry. But God's power, by great contrast, has shown not its power to destroy, but its power to create. And think about it for a moment. Shouldn't it go without saying that the power that raised Jesus of Nazareth from the dead must surely be superior to any power on earth which can only create death. Therefore, it is God and not man, God and not man who has the real power. God holds the power to retrieve, the power to restore, the power to reclaim, the power to revive, the power to resurrect indeed. He holds the very power of good, the very reason for the hope that lies within the heart of every one of his believers. 
John the Baptist knew the extent of God's power, and he said so in the presence of those principalities and powers that had come down from Jerusalem to investigate him at the Jordan River. And do not presume to say to yourselves, he lectured them, we have Abraham as our father, for I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children to Abraham. And even Satan knew of such power and very famously tempted Jesus to exploit it selfishly. If thou be the Son of God, and the, the words there actually mean since you are the Son of God, command that these stones be made bread, Jesus said, as Satan said to Jesus. Well, now think with me. If we could command stones, for example, to become bread, if we could wield such awesome creative power as that, what are we to suppose that we would do with it? Some would succumb to the temptation to exploit it selfishly. They would use it to get things they want or achieve the ends that they desire. Others might use it to recover something of value that they have lost along the way. They might employ it to restore failing health, fading beauty, lost love, squandered money, wasted possession, missing self-esteem, or elusive happiness. Probably many of us would use ultimate power if we had it at our disposal for an altogether good purpose, and that would be to bring back a loved one that we have lost. On the other hand, some might use it to take down an enemy, supposing thereby to be able to restore some lost sense of what is just. Jesus' signs and mighty wonders, followed by his several appearances subsequent to the resurrection, demonstrated the very fact and the very enormity of God's power. But it's apparent from the gospel accounts that the same power, uh, that same power was what his disciples wanted to take and to apply to the restoration of Israel and the recovery of their national fortune. And you know, in a way, humanly speaking, we can understand that. For all of their lives, these disciples had suffered the common Jewish frustration, the embarrassment, the inward agony of having lost their national prerogatives to a merciless interloper whose name was Imperial Rome. And now, having witnessed their revered rabbi and lord as he was raised, they supposed that they were on the verge of an exciting possibility the restoration of the autonomy of God's people and their reinstatement as an independent nation. But they apparently misunderstood Jesus' reference to the promise of the Father that we read about in Acts 1-4. Because two verses later, they're going to be standing with him on the Mount of Olives and inquiring, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? But then God the Father, through the voice of his only begotten Son, contradicted this misguided aspiration. God's Holy Spirit was not intended to serve only his ancient people, to restore something that they had lost. When and if that should happen, it would happen in God's good time and on God's calendar. In the meantime, the purpose of Holy Spirit power was this. It was to equip God's people with a message. It was the message of the Savior. This would be a powerful message. It would be 
a creative message, a message in real spoken words, not unlike really the words that God had used to create the world in the first place. Was that not amazing? And God said, let there be light. And there was light. That's all that happened. He spoke. And something happened. Something was created. But the purpose and function of these new and different words that communicated a revolutionary new message about Jesus would be not to recreate humankind, but rather to restore humankind, to restore a lost and sinful humankind to the God that you and I had offended. The late African-American Baptist preacher Gardner Taylor, a New Yorker as a matter of fact, was once asked how he thought the message of the Bible might be summed up in one single sentence. Now think about that. What would you say? The revered old pastor reared back in his chair, and we can just see him. He scratched his chin thoughtfully, and then he leaned forward and he spoke the following words. God is out to get back that which has been taken away from him. God is out to get back what rightfully belongs to him. As God's servants, you and I are the objects and the inheritors of God's mighty power. We know that because Jesus said, you shall receive power, you shall, after the Holy Spirit has come upon you. Yet we are not recipients of such power for the simple sake of becoming powerful. Rather, we are the recipients of such power for the sake of bearing a powerful message into the world. The risen Jesus' words to his disciples, he said, it's not for you to know the times and the seasons. That may sound like a dodge, it may sound like a brush off, but actually those words serve to refocus his followers' attention. You will receive power, Jesus said, and you will be my witnesses according to that power. But are we who believe in him paying attention? And have we, through the years of our lives and our church's lives, paid attention? Witness, what does that mean? Witness to the saving activity of God in Jesus Christ. We know it happened. We have seen it happen. Such witness is the purpose of God's power, and it is, according to these verses, the function of that power in you and in me. And, of course, we get confused about it. We do want God's power to make us powerful in our lives of prayer, powerful in our Discipleship, powerful in our service to our humankind, fellow humankind. And to be sure, God's power will strengthen us in such important ways as that. But the ultimate purpose of God's Spirit within us, and hear this, is not to help us be good or even to assist us in bringing about good, but rather it is to strengthen us to announce the very goodness of God. Certainly we need to do the most good we can, but our greatest need is to do the very best that anyone can do. 
and that is to witness boldly to God's saving work which was wrought in Jesus Christ our Lord. And if somehow by the Spirit's mighty power we were to realize all of our heart's desires, whether they were selfless or self-centered, there would always be the matter of God's own heart's desire. And what is that and how can we know it? Well, Paul was speaking from the heart of God when he wrote the following words. Brothers and sisters, he wrote in the book of Romans, my heart's desire and prayer to God is that people may be saved. And Peter added to that word, the Lord is patient with you, Peter said, not wanting anyone, anyone at all, to perish, but all to come to repentance. The spiritually powerful church is not what most people think it is. It is not the largest, it is not the richest, it is not the most important, it is not the most politically and socially engaged, or even the fastest growing church. Rather, it is the church that employs the Holy Spirit's power in witness to God's saving love, both to its own community and to the entirety of the world. And it seems that God agrees with Gardner Taylor, and Gardner Taylor agrees back with God. Getting back lost humanity, that humanity that God created and that rightfully belongs to him, has priority over every other good thing that we may desire. And like most true believers, we properly have our eyes set on a good thing that we call heaven, we might even wish that we could be powerful enough to turn this fallen world into heaven. But then we would need to remember what the angel said there on the Mount of Olives. Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking up toward heaven? This Jesus who has been taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. God's power is awe-inspiring, but the point is, we need not stand, dare not stand, spellbound over its possibilities. Jesus has promised to return in the same way he went, and in the meantime, we who are his servants are to apply ourselves faithfully and to produce all the good fruit that we can, but never may we neglect the greatest good that we can do, and that is to share the message of Christ's salvation and to prepare for his coming. And may it be so in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.